Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So today's interview with Dr. Ryan Snyder is kind of special for me because I was actually a student of his a few years back, about nine years ago, and so today it's like a, I don't know, it's sort of a graduation. 
of sorts, a conversational graduation. Dr. Snyder is a passionate guy. He's got a lot of love for a lot of things and it really comes through in his conversation and his tone of voice and you can hear the passion. So I think you're going to enjoy today's interview. He's going to talk about sustainability and how he believes it's a three-legged stool. He's going to talk about social enterprise. In fact, he's going to talk about his own social enterprise called Socially Responsible Safaris. Check them out online. Very cool, very interesting, the work that he's doing. He's going to talk about why he thinks that there's some reasons to still be optimistic about the world we live in. So buckle up and I hope you enjoy the uh, conversation today on your drive into work. Don't forget to check out uh, my site, davidpecklive.com for more information about speaking and about my blogging and about my book, Real Change, which you can get available on amazon.ca. And I'm going to be talking about the mind market coming up soon and you'll hear more about that in the near future. Enjoy today's interview. So welcome to Face to Face. It is, uh, wow, I don't even know what it is, but it's the first week of November, November 6th, I think, something like that. And my guest today is uh, Dr. Ryan Snyder. Uh, he is, um, this is going to be a great interview. I, I know that for a lot of reasons because he was actually uh, my professor a few years ago. That's right. That's how Ryan and I met. So thanks for uh, um, joining us today. I'd forgotten about that until you mentioned yeah, that. So, isn't that yeah, isn't that wild? So, well, yeah. Eight or nine years ago now. It was mm -hmm. a few years ago. So so uh, uh, Dr. Snyder is um, in the school of, uh, at Humber College, the School of Hospitality and Recreation and Tourism. Uh, his specialty is geography, uh, development, and ecotourism. And we're going to talk about probably his teaching, probably about students and social change and where we're heading in the future. But I also want to spent some time talking about um, socially responsible safaris. So check him out online and his site srsafaris.com, socially responsible safaris. And we're going to get into that uh, a little bit more today. So thanks again, uh, Ryan. So so why, why do I give a rat's ass about being socially responsible? <laughs> why should I even bother? Well, I think all of sustainability comes down to the fact that we would like our children to have the same experiences and our grandchildren to have the same experiences and opportunities that we do. And with a world where populations are increasing dramatically, we have over a billion people living in China, there's over a billion people living in India, there's over a billion people living in Africa on the continent. As populations continue to increase and we have increased resource consumption, we realize that's going to be an issue for the future. And in order to maintain that sustainability that we're, that elusive sustainability that we're looking for, uh, if our children have the same opportunities that you and I did, um, we have to figure out how can we reuse those resources in a sustainable way, hence the concept of social responsibility. Do you really believe that, you know, my mom used to have a little, uh, she used to preach to her kids through notes that she would put on mm -hmm. the refrigerator without actually saying things, and one of them was everything I do uh, is connected to someone else. Mm -hmm. And I think that did have an impact on me, you know, I'm all about incrementalism and social change and so on. Do you think the things that you and I do today, the coffee we're drinking here during this interview, the cars that we're driving and so on, really is connected to this idea of social responsibility? I fully believe it is. That's one of the reasons why I'm in this field. However, there is a, a tenet there that the only reason we're aware of that, I think, is be because we travel, because we hmm. fly to the other sides of the earth. And when we meet other people on the other side of the earth, we realize they're not that much different than us. Um, they live, they have some of the same goals and dreams and passions that you and I do. They might be manifest in different ways than ours are. But once we travel, we realize that our similarities are greater than our differences. And I think that that's another reason why tourism is so important for people to realize that it's not an us and a them, but when we travel, we realize it turns into a we. How, 
I mean, similarities are greater than our differences. You know, as a student, I'm going to roll my eyes on that, aren't I? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, great. Here we go. <laughs> and it's kind of got this tagline to it. It's mm-hmm. sort of the thing you'd see in a bumper sticker, you know. by it's Didn't Gandhi say that? Maybe. You know? <laughs> but I agree with you. Mm-hmm. How do you communicate that to a student that's not already excited about it? How do I tell my mother that, who's in her 80s now, who didn't grow up with the notion of fair trade? How do we how do we talk to uh, my kids? They're six and nine. Is it by osmosis this happens? Is it slowly that our culture is shifting? Is it the free the children's and the meetawees and the world visions of the world that are changing minds um, and getting out of that cliche? Uh, you know, because it really is. I mean, I I just get back from Cambodia. I'm with you 100%. Mm. We really are all in this together, mm-hmm. and we aren't that much different at the end of the day. And I, I interviewed Nigel Fisher recently. And he says two things that in, in 40 years he's found is people want jobs and they want good educations mm-hmm. for their kids. Mm-hmm. And it might be cliche. Um, and probably the more and more people become familiar with it becomes cliche. At the same time, there is a reason why things become cliche. There is some truth to that at, the, at its root. I think everywhere you go, I've been very fortunate in my career and my travels to be in well over 40 countries. Uh, worked in probably 30 different countries. And I've been, similar to what you had just mentioned, everywhere you go, parents want enough food, water, shelter, education, health care for their children. It's a primary concept. It doesn't matter if you're living in Toronto, if you're living in Thailand, if you're living in Timbuktu. People want those same concepts. Just how we, just, how we express it is differently. I think the same concept is that in the West, we've often gone to the nth degree. We've gone to the extreme where we're constantly wanting more, more, more. And I think we have to realize at some point that if over 7 billion people in the world all strive to the same resource consumption that we do here in Canada and in the West, then we're going to have serious, serious challenges. And I think everybody wants the same thing, but there also comes a point where traveling takes you to the next level and realizes maybe we can't all have that same thing. Maybe we can't all have large houses or second houses. We can't all have multiple cars. We can't all eat beef every meal. Because as we do that and we get a growing population and we're greater, much greater middle class now than we've ever had at any point in the history of the world, that we realize these resources are being consumed at a much faster rate and we might not be able to replenish them. So is, do you think that traveling is the great equalizer or can it be the great equalizer? Because it seems to me that it would depend on the... the um, presupposition, the assumptions that you have going in. Mm-hmm. If you go in with this white, arrogant, Western kind of, I can afford a $200 a night hotel mm-hmm. in the city of Phnom Penh, uh, isn't that going to offset whether or not you can actually see, whether or not you can actually listen to what's going on around mm-hmm. you? I get asked that question a lot by friends and relatives and students, and I, I don't think that's really the right question, because I feel that regardless of the motive or motivation or the, the bias that we bring to it, People are still going to travel. People want to travel. When people win the lottery, first thing they want to do is pay off their mortgage, and the second thing is they want to travel. Travel the world. When you hear about people retiring, the first thing they want to do, spend some time with their grandkids and travel. And I think it's going to occur. When you're going to these countries with middle-income countries, such as India and China, Brazil, Russia, and you ask this middle class, is merging a middle class, what do you want to do? They want to start to travel. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a known fact that people are going to travel. I think the key is, how do we travel? How do we encourage people to travel within that concept? 
And as we have reached over a billion people last year, World Tourism Organization wow. has reached over a billion people have been on an international flight last year. Um, we know that's going to continue to increase as many of the countries are increasing with, uh, within their economies. We also know that people are going to want to travel more and more. When I ask my students, how many of you plan on traveling in the next year, every single hand goes up. And so I figure because we know people are going to travel, regardless of the questions why or the motivations, we know people are going to travel. We have to identify and really evaluate what are ways that we can travel, because people are going to, with minimizing our impact on both the environment, on culture, and on, on host communities. Billion people traveling, that's a whole lot of Ducarol. Yes. <laughs> I know, we should have invested in Ducarol many years ago. Um, that's, that's crazy. It is. And with Ducarol, it's also uh, fuel consumption. It's carbon emitted into sure. the air. It's, um, it's, resource, it's resource consumption. And so it's, it's, a major, it's going to be a major issue. And so we have to be, in the, in, the, in the tourism field, have to look for innovative, creative ways, entrepreneurial ways to say, people are going to travel. How do we mitigate, mitigate that impact? Is that what your business is all about? You know, you, you talk about traveling with a purpose. It's socially responsible safaris. Clearly, Africa mm -hmm. focused. Mm -hmm. I would imagine yep. Kenya, from what I know of you, Southern uh, Africa. Southern yep. Africa. Mm -hmm. So, is that what socially responsible safaris is about? It's about making money. It's about re-educating. It's about changing the world mm -hmm. on some level, isn't it? it? It is. It is. Hopefully, it's a little more than that. Um, sustainability, as as I see it, is really it's a three-legged stool. The first leg is that it has to be about people and it has to be how do we minimize our impact on people, on cultures, on the host communities. The second leg is the planet. How do we minimize our impact on the planet? How do we reduce environmental consumption? And the third leg is profit. There has to be a profit element to me. Uh, most nonprofit organizations, one of the reasons why they've often failed and anyone who studies development can tell you case study after case study after case study after a failed development project is usually because there was no profit element to it and eventually that funding base dried up and eventually that NGO had to leave and that project that they had started with great intentions didn't work out the way that had originally attended. So if we can work on people and the planet and the profit, um, then we start to get closer to this concept of sustainability. Do you think Do you think students are, you know, that whole triple bottom line versus the single, you know, that whole Milton Friedman-like, you know, it's all about profits for the shareholder. Do you think students, have you seen a trend, a pattern developing over the last five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years? of change there, saying students are actually thinking this way now? I mean, I, I think my kids are. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't call it the triple bottom line. Sure. But they understand about international affairs because of, you know, my leaning. They get environment in a way that I sure don't mm -hmm. at 49. I don't, I kind of hate recycling, mm -hmm. you know? I, I <laughs> they love it. Yeah. They actually do. They yeah. get annoyed with me when they see me throw something. Sure. You know, so I wonder, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm hopeful for a lot of reasons, yeah. but I wonder where you sit on that. I definitely think they're more aware. I definitely think, like you said, they're more aware of the concepts. They're more aware of the, of the impacts. And I think that is the first struggle. But I do find that even with my students who are passionate about these issues, they love development, they love the environment, um, they're, aware, they're aware of this. They've been, heard these same topics preached to them since they were in grade one. At the same time, there's something in us, and maybe it's more prevalent in our culture, in our society, but there's something in us to want more. And when I ask my students, you know, what, what are you hoping to do within five years from today after you graduate? Usually it is to have their own car. It might be a smart car, but it's still to have a car. Um, it is to have a house. Uh, when you talk about 10 or 15 year goals, sometimes the word cottage comes into that lexicon. And I think that um, we're more aware of it. At the same time, within our society that is so commercial, 
commercialistic and you see students who are have been bombarded with commercialism ever since they've been young that those are difficult um, difficult concepts and difficult ideas to just turn your back on and so they're aware of it at the same time they still want those those uh, rewards that come often from higher education and therefore again another reason why I think socially responsible tourism in my case or social corporate social responsibility in this different cases has to try to take this meld these two between environmental awareness and concern and coupling it with the fact that especially in the West we're looking for more and bigger and faster and longer do you think everybody's looking for that like have you said you know 40 countries you've worked in 30 this most recent trip to Cambodia, I got a sense that, you know, the gap's growing. Mm -hmm. It's not getting, you know, Credit Suisse report comes out, $263 trillion of profit last year around the world. Mm -hmm. Almost 70% of it is in North America and Europe. Mm -hmm. So it's growing here, but I think what that's doing is creating maybe more of a desire for it to grow there, mm -hmm. wherever there happens to be. Yeah. And do you think it's the same if we're all in this together? Yeah. Do we all want that second car in that cottage? Sure. I can't speak, obviously, obviously I can't speak on behalf of what everybody around the world would think, but I think from my experience and my travels, uh, the, the community that I've spent the most of my time with is an indigenous Maasai community in Kenya. Um, still extremely indigenous, living almost exactly the same way they did 300 years ago. Uh, very, very minimal, minimalist living. Um, you know, still living in, in, in houses that are made of cow dung and... and um, and mud and, and wattle trees. So very, very basic, very indigenous, very uh, similar to what they've been for hundreds of years. And even in that community, there is always a goal to have more cattle. Hmm. There's a goal to have more goats. There's a goal to have more sheep. Um, and so even in that level, maybe their, their materialism would be very different than what it would be in, in, in the West and manifest itself very differently. But even that idea for more, greater, there's more power that comes with wealth. Um, there's more prestige that comes with wealth. I even see it on that basic level. So yes, I think we all do everywhere in the world we go. I think we want more. Um, at the same time, the way it manifests itself is obviously very different. Nina Monk in uh, her book, um, The Idealist, the one that she's kind of lashing out against Jeffrey Saxon, mm -hmm. she talks about how in some some herding communities where, where uh, people could have, uh, Kenyans could have mitigated their poverty by selling their cattle off or mm -hmm. their animals, they wouldn't mm -hmm. because it was a form of currency. Right. Different kind of currency. Yeah. Status, mm -hmm. power, control, etc. Yeah. Yeah, and it's very, even when I go and work with them and um, they'd often see me as a foreign professor driving in maybe in a Land Rover and then when they find out through conversation that I don't own any cattle <laughs> and I don't own any land apart from my house, um, it's often seen as a, uh, you know, it's a cultural shift there, just realizing the differences between those two. And do you go down a notch in their mind as a result? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think I do. Now, they realize I'm, I'm looking into different things, and they're yeah. more exposed to Westerners, realizing that, you know, we put our value in different ideas. But within culture, there is always perceived amount of, perceived how we view wealth. Yeah. Every culture might view it differently, yeah. but I think the same idea raises everywhere, where you're always looking for more. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges that's gone along with, with, with the environment specifically, but also with a lot of conflict throughout the world. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing because I, I could, I've asked many, many people on face-to-face on -face and just personally, when is enough enough? Mm -hmm. You know, we're all, I, we're, I'm all about the creation of wealth. Yeah. 
But what does that mean? Yeah. Is it capital W? Is it small W? Is it a cottage and two cars and a three-car garage? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. And yet you talk to people who I would call wealthy and they don't think they have enough. No. I mean, I've often I've studied Africa and, and uh, African history for a long time. And I, I've studied dictators quite a bit. And I think, you know, when you're a dictator of a small African country and you have $5 billion... <laughs> Well, maybe you have five billion dollars stashed away at yeah. various accounts throughout the world, and your country is dirt poor, and people are rebelling, and you've got five billion. Do you really need that six billion dollars? There's no way you could spend all that money. You have mm -hmm. yachts mm -hmm. and castles and houses, and how you couldn't spend your five billion? Do you really? And yet, even at that level, there's that goal for more. There's how can I be, you know, how can I steal more or be corrupted more to get that sixth billion or that seventh billion dollars? So and we see that again and again and again. And you see it everywhere, and and, and you see it in the West. It's just a different kind mm -hmm. of corruption. It's a different kind of crime. It's a different kind of excess. Yeah. How do you get that guy to think differently? Mm -hmm. Or that woman to think, they, or do you even concern yourself with that as an academic and as a practitioner? Because I think one of the things I, I love about you is that yeah, you're you're writing the papers, you got the PhD, you're teaching at a college and university level, but you're actually on the ground doing it mm -hmm. as well. So you're 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 dealing with the bridge and the disconnect yeah. of theory and practice, and that's amazing. But how do you get to those guys who are of no interest, no interest whatsoever? Yeah, it, it is difficult. Even on my on my safaris, it is a passion of mine to take academia and apply it and figure out how can we use our academic knowledge but apply it in a on the ground. And so even on my safaris with the safari company and bring people over, obviously they tend to appeal to a certain uh, crowd, a certain demographic. And oftentimes they tend to be a little bit older. They tend to be a little bit more uh, higher education levels, maybe a higher socioeconomic level in order to be able to afford a safari over in Africa for a couple of weeks. And I find it very interesting even at that level to having those conversations around the campfire at night um, and just hearing that, you know, it's often things that I would think would be common sense or I would think would be, hey, as humans, these are things we need to share and realizing, no, they're really not. They're really not. Um, I don't think that, I'm not, I think a two-week experience overseas Maybe it impacts somebody to their their knowledge base. I think it impacts them on their awareness. I don't know if they come home completely radically changed and wanting mm -hmm. to live differently or sell the second cottage or the third cottage. And that's something we have to realize in the West is that oftentimes we talk about this concept of you know the, the, the rich and the poor, the spread between the two. But usually when people, very few people now in Canada have one cottage. They usually have two. <laughs> or they have a home in Florida and Toronto and Muskoka. So there's a gap. Yeah according to the World Bank, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. then there's a perceived gap, right? right? right exactly. Oh, geez, I'm not making as much as that right. guy, yes. right? So and, and, and the challenge is we always compare ourselves to the person with more. We know somebody that has the bigger home or the somebody that and we have three cottages or the, a larger boat. We compare ourselves to them. For some reason, we don't compare ourselves to the people that have much less and feel fortunate for that. Now, at the same time, one of the reasons why our, you know, the West has developed so rapidly in the past 100, 150 years it's because of that ethic. It's because of that desire for more. It's because of that that work ethic to to increase. Well, that's freedom. Increase We're back resources. To Friedman, right? Exactly, Dr. Friedman. So it's one of the profits, and things will change. But at some point, you hit that critical point where all of a sudden you realize that with population growth, with the fact that we want more. I mean, even in basic homes that you're buying now, they are much more luxurious than a castle was 150 years ago. I was in some model homes just the other day. I'm looking at some model homes and real, talked to the lady and I found this very interesting that in almost all the bathrooms, the master bathrooms I went in, had their own TV. 
So you could be shaving in the morning, looking in the mirror and looking in at this TV, watching the news or watching CNN. And I asked the real estate agent about it and she said, oh yeah, she said almost all the new homes we're making nowadays have TVs, of course, in the living room, in the master bedroom, but now even in the, in the bathroom. You know, 100 years ago, even the wealthy, not even 150 years ago, even the wealthiest, wealthiest rock stars didn't have televisions in their bathroom. And, and now, so now it's becoming common, common sake. And the challenge is the suburban North America. And it doesn't mean it stops there, right? Our children, grandchildren, will continue to keep moving unless there's a drastic shift, unless there's a drastic um, economic... We talk about the you know, economic challenges from 2008 or 2009, and they definitely shook up the economy, but not dramatically like we're talking about. So, so Leonard Cohen says in, the, in, in his song, The Future, that love is the only engine of survival. Mm. It sounds to me like um, consumerism yes. is the only engine <laughs> of survival. I hadn't thought of that in that context, but yeah, I, th I think it's it's continuing. And so to get back to your original question about our young people, I do find it very interesting. They are very aware, very knowledgeable. They know the impacts. And at the same time, you fight against this internal struggle with yourself trying to say, and there's only the only way that I will, I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but yep. where I do have some optimism, the only way where I've seen it done very well is if you, you need to surround yourself with other like-minded individuals. If you surround yourself with friends and family members that are all striving for more, 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 it's extremely difficult to live that way. If you can surround yourself with other like-minded individuals who also want to live simply, that also want to live responsibly, that also want to live sustainably, you will find some success at that level in the fact that you are able to minimize because you're not comparing, you are still comparing yourself to them. I think that's a human trait. But at the same time, you're not comparing as to who's got more, but you're comparing to say who can be more responsible. I think, I think the distinction between living simply and living responsibly is a good one because living simply is just, I mean, they're all up for discussion. They're all perspectival in their own way. They all mm -hmm. come with assumptions and so on. But the whole notion of living simply, well, what does that mean? Does that mean living in a commune or is that, you know, you're going to live in a tent under the old Islington Bridge here mm -hmm. in Toronto mm -hmm. at the Humber River? Um, but the notion of responsibility adds to me an ethical kind of moral edge that could be humanistic, could be religious. I think it. I think it's a little. I don't know. I get mm -hmm. the sense that it's a little more holistic. Mm -hmm. So you're a geographer. So Bono says in the end of poverty that it's an accident of geography. Mm. It's an accident of geography that ca that that causes him, and I would agree, causes me in some regards to to be thankful. Mm -hmm. For the what? What if I had have been born in uh, the Gobi Desert sure. in Mongolia? What if I had have been born in the most distant rural community in Nepal? Mm -hmm. How would my life be different today? Mm -hmm. Some ways it's probably going to be better, mm -hmm. but in many ways it's going to be sure. worse. What, what do you What do you have to say yeah. to that? Yeah, well, I mean, Bono is is working off the works of Jared Diamond and his his ideas with um, guns, germs, and steels. And Diamond talks about a theory called environmental determinism. So maybe it takes it a little further what, than what Bono was, was saying, but how the environment and climate determine so much of who we, who we are. And we know for a fact that the further you get away from the equator, okay, the further you live from the equator, the wealthier your country is, the higher levels of education as a nation, the higher levels of healthcare occur, and the closer you live to the equator, the less you have of that. Having said that, we also have to remember that there are many wealthy, wealthy people living in the poorest countries of the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I, you go to Nigeria and you, some of the wealthiest people in the world live in Nigeria. Some of the wealthiest people in the world live in Kenya. Some of the wealthiest people in the world live in Thailand. Um, extremely wealthy and large, large houses and, and large, large business enterprises. Some of the wealthiest people live in India. And so we have to remember that it's not necessary, it's, it's, it's environmental determinism maybe according to Diamond, but it doesn't mean that it's 
it's the be all and end all. And so it could be an accident of geography that most people in the Western countries, most people in the North have a better economic situation than the South. But at the same time, it's not a precursor. It doesn't mean that people don't. And I think what I've said oftentimes in Africa, especially East Africa, there's this disconnect between the wealthy and the poor. There's this divide, this chasm, where you either have one bicycle, <laughs> somebody who has one bicycle, or you're somebody who has three BMWs. And there seems to be very little in between. And so you're just scraping by on that few dollars a day and barely getting by with your bicycle. Or you're at the other end of the spectrum where you've got large houses and big jobs and, um, and a, number of, a number of vehicles. And it's only recently that we're starting to see a little more of a middle class, middle income level um, within some of these developing countries, but it's been like that for generations. So maybe Bono and, and Diamond are correct that our environment has really made a, a factor in who we are and how our economies are due to geography, due to climate. At the same time, we have to remember it's not a perfect correlation. It's not, to, not a direct relationship between those two. Yeah, I think the deterministic edge is frankly quite dangerous mm -hmm. because it all of a sudden it's got this woe is me kind of yeah. thing going on to it that I, I can't get I can't lift myself out of poverty, whatever however you define that, because I'm screwed mm -hmm. from a geographic perspective or uh, an economic perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, I look at some of the things that are happening in Southeast Asia, large across the board, and the change that's occurring mm -hmm. is incredible. Now, I hope globalization is going to speed those things up. Mm -hmm. It'll probably also retard it in some ways. But there are some, there's a lot of things to celebrate, it seems yeah. to me, even if we're talking about accidents of geography. How, um, so my goal, I think, is to get students of mine, uh, people who read my blog and listen to the podcast, and all, to be thinking about others in a way that's holistic, in a way that's based on some sort of communitarianism. I know it sounds a little airy-fairy mm -hmm. uh, uh, on some level, but how do you get people to think of others. So you've got socially responsible safaris. You're taking presumably rich people mm -hmm. for overseas for this incredible experience. You sell it in a variety of ways, I'm sure. Um, and I want to talk about some of the impact that's had. I'd sure. love to hear about mm -hmm. some of the stories. So I guess maybe the question is simply, how do some of those folks come home and think about others in a way that mm -hmm. maybe they didn't before they went because they've now, you've taken them by the hand, mm -hmm. metaphorically, and led them to meet the Maasai leaders and the yeah. village folk and the women, and, the, and they're seeing challenges mm -hmm. in, in a way that, that, that many of us don't get yeah. to see. Yeah, well, for most of my guests coming on a trip, they've obviously done some reading about Africa, they've you know, seen movies on Africa, they hear about it in the news every couple of days about Africa, so they have a preconceived notion about Africa. I think they're very aware that there's poverty um, within most African countries, and I think they have a preconceived notion about that, what that means too. I think where it changes them through travel is that throughout the course of the 12-day trip that they're with me, we make sure that we get into some communities. We start to build some relationships. Sometimes it is planting trees with a local community to offset our carbon output from the airplane. Um, sometimes it's volunteering in orphanages. Uh, sometimes it's working in schools. Sometimes it's in health clinics. Depends on the group. And I think when they come home then, they often, for years afterwards, will often make donations specifically to those different projects, that tree planting project or that school or that orphanage that they visited. And I find it very interesting. I thought, you know, I could have told them about that orphanage or that school many, many, many times prior to the trip and it would have just slid off. It would have just wouldn't have, resonated. wouldn't have resonated whatsoever. But yet years later, they are still asking me, how are those little kids doing? Or here's $150, can you send it over? 
um, you know, to buy new mattresses for the, for the children or mosquito nets. And again, it's not any different that those children still would have been there. The orphanage would have been there the same. It's just the fact that they have a personal relationship with them. Um, I wouldn't, it's not a deep relationship. Sometimes they're only with them for a couple days. But at the same time, they realize this is not just a face. It's not, sorry, it's not just a number. It's not just a statistic. These are actual children. They happen to know their names. I maybe have some photographs of them. Um, and so it's an interesting way of building that relationship. And I think that's why through travel, through tourism, when you start to realize these are people, faces, um, as opposed to just statistics, then you start to see humanity um, increase and, and stand up in those situations. Why do you, why do you care about others? Why, <laughs> why does it matter to you? Yeah, I, I more and more, I think certain people just have it in them. I think hmm. certain people are just born. We all I mean, know, you, give, you give me the sense that you got a fire in your belly. I do, and yeah. I always have. Um, it, uh, and part of it is from my upbringing. My parents, when I was very young, moved to East Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was six years old, they worked at a rural school. And my father was a principal and my mother was a teacher at a rural school in Kenya. Um, and so part of it maybe comes from genetics. <laughs> um, at the same time, when I was young, six, seven, eight years old, they used to make a conscious effort to get my sister and I out into the villages, out into communities, try to encourage us to learn Swahili, value other cultures, even though they were very different than the culture that we grew up in. Um, and so part of it might have been genetics, part of it might have been just my upbringing. Um, at the same time, I've seen, I grew up with other Western kids, Canadian kids in East Africa at the same time, similar situations, similar contexts, and yet they don't have that same passion, they don't have that same desire. They might never go back and that's fine with them. Um, so I, I don't know why. I think the key is maybe not to ask why some people do and why some people don't. I think the key might be to say when you do know you have that passion or that fire, as you put it, um, within you, how can you actually turn that into something that's good? How can you get away from just rhetoric and, and, and vocabulary and actually put it into practice? Yeah, it seems to me that if people were pressed, you know, multiple choice test, mm -hmm. survey, do you want to change the world? Mm -hmm. Do you want to make a difference? If I told you, you know, kind of that, that famine affluence morality question that Peter Singer posed in the 70s about Somalia and what was going on in Ethiopia and the Great Horn and the famine, you know, children are dying, now what? Can you help? Will you help? Mm -hmm. I think most people would say, yes, sure. I want to help. Yeah. And yet, they don't have the picture of the child on mm -hmm. the refrigerator, not that, that we both know that that's the answer, yeah. but they're not even engaged on that level. Mm -hmm. um, now, maybe, you know, uh, they're engaged on a volunteer level. Maybe they volunteer yeah. at their Cubs group. Maybe they are on their uh, uh, school committees. They're, they're active in their rotary clubs. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder about that sometimes because I don't think Canadians are the most generous folk in the world financially. Mm -hmm. And yet, from what I hear, we're, we're big on volunteer hours. Right. So, I, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't think I want to make people feel guilty. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, you come back from a Cambodian trip that I've just come back from or you're back from Kenya and you go, for the love. Yeah. Guys, yeah. can't we figure something in yeah. here? It's uh, not about parachuting money into these no, countries. No, it's not. And people are aware of that. I, I, I think the real challenge is that for most people, most people, they want to help. If they took the multiple choice you referred to, they would say, yes, I want to help the world. However, as long as it doesn't affect me too negatively. <laughs> I'll give a little right. bit of money here and there, but as long right. as it doesn't really affect my standard of living. I will give right. a few volunteer hours here, but as long as it doesn't affect my you know, yeah. other component. And again, that's not across the board. There are people who are very selfless and altruistic but they're few and far between. And I think that's one of the challenges is that people, and I'm building on something here, I think that's the challenge is that many people are willing to help out, they will do the multiple choice test. Uh, you've seen that just in social media recently with a um, ice bucket challenge. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were on the ice bucket challenge willing to dump ice water on their head 
But at the same time, when it actually came to giving some money at the end of the time, nothing. I think that's what's really extremely challenging about that is that we see this as we have set, we're reaching 7 billion people in the world. And there's a much greater middle class than ever before in some of these developing countries. And those people in those developing countries now are also getting to the point where they also want a car. They also want to eat meat every meal. They also want to have larger homes with flushing uh, toilets. And as that occurs, it means we in the West won't have the same access to multiple resources that we've had in the past. When you have a billion people in China wanting flushing toilets in their houses, that has a huge impact. <laughs> and I think that's where you're going to see a real challenge in the West is when we realize, yes, we want to help people. We want people to have a better life. But once it starts to compromise our mm-hmm. lives and mm-hmm. compromise our lifestyle, mm-hmm. now this, now we're not so much in favor of this. And where we're starting to see that is through climate change. We're starting to see that where you know, uh, pollution on one side of the world is starting to affect the climate on our side of the world. And now we're really starting to get our back up against it because it affects us. But once we see that on every other level on oil and water consumption and fuel and energy starting to affect our lifestyles, I think that's going to be a watershed moment. Now maybe we better do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. So on that (laughs) note, sounds a little cynical, sounds, um, Mm -hmm. but tell me, and you made some comment earlier about, you know, not to get too negative, (laughs) are, you know, teaching young people, you're writing about it, you're thinking about it, you're still in the country on the ground, boots on the ground kind of guy, are you encouraged? Are you hopeful? Yes, I am on the micro level. I think when I talk to individuals, when I speak to you know, individual students, uh, when I see relationships, inter- individual relationships between people that, have, that are partnering overseas, I'm very encouraged. I think sometimes what we've been talking about maybe th- throughout this interview thus far is on the macro level, and that's where it gets a little more discouraging. When you start talking about 7 billion people, mm-hmm. that can get discouraging. When you start talking about the individual cases, and I think that's what all of this comes down to, comes back to our, maybe our very original context, you know, that we're all humans, we all want some mm-hmm. of the same issues. Um, on the micro level, I am encouraged. That's why I'm in academia. That's why I'm in education. That's why I love working with students. Um, because I see those great stories that never get publicized. They never make it to a book. They never make it to a print. Those great stories daily um, on individual levels and even seeing the impacts that we're having in East Africa that are quite exciting. So you do believe in change. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people who don't, mm-hmm. or at least in this kind of systemic okay. change. You know, of course, there's that sort of change that just occurs because the world is changing, mm-hmm. I suppose, and growing and so on. But that kind of intentional, incremental stuff. Sure. That, that is micro yeah. level, right? Mm-hmm. That, that ultimately can affect macro, mm-hmm. right? That's where, you know, I was, I was in a meeting with uh, about six leaders in a, in a Cambodian context with an NGO. And afterwards, I went over to the director and I said, wow, you got some amazing people here. This is what makes me hopeful. Mm-hmm. These are all in their late 20s, early 30s. Put these six people into government positions in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're talking. Sure. But it had to start somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, let me close then maybe with a quick example of where I'm, an example of something I'm very encouraged in. One of the issues that got me involved with ecotourism a number of years ago, in northern Kenya, there's an area called Turkana, extremely poor, arid, dry, very little government influence. And I spent some time up there and I was surprised when I went into the health clinic that they actually had a doctor with some medicines. That was very rare for northern Kenya. I went into the school and there was a teacher who was getting paid with school supplies. Again, very rare for rural Kenya like that. Um, and so when I did some research, I found, well, the money wasn't coming from the government for these, to pay for this hospital and the medical clinic in the school. There, were, there wasn't really an NGO that was working there at that time, so it wasn't NGO and charitable money that was coming in. 
And it wasn't business money because there wasn't really very much economy. And I thought, well, where, where is this coming yeah, from? You know, it's not charity and it's not government and it's not business. Where is this money coming from? And when I did a little more research, I realized it was coming through tourism. Every week on a Monday, there was a little airplane that would fly up with five or six eco-tourists. They'd get out of the plane. They'd spend a day with this Turkana community learning about their culture. And then they'd spend the next four or five days on the back of a camel trekking across the desert and having this eco-tour opportunity, sleeping in tents, eating local food, um, spending time with these local tribesmen. Um, and then flying back to Nairobi a couple days later. And half the money they were spending was going to the tour operator to pay for the accommodations and the meals and the food and the guides. And the other half was going to this Turkana community trust that they were using then to pay the doctor, pay the teacher, pay the school supplies, pay the medical supplies. And not only was it an exciting initiative, but I thought we're starting to get to this concept of sustainability. Mm. Because had an NGO been pouring money in there, eventually that money runs out. It has a, you know, it always yep. has, it always yep. will. But the fact through tourism was the fact that after this group of tourists went back to Nairobi, a few days later there was another group of six eco-tourists wanting to come up for that similar experience. And a few days later there was another group wanting to come up and today there's still eco-tourists going to Northern Kenya. And as I talk to my students about this example that I'm mentioning, and I say, how many of you would like to go to Northern Kenya someday on an eco-tour and a camel trek across the desert? You know, half the hands go up in the class. And so that's where I see this concept of sustainability occurring through tourism. As tourists want to travel, they, we know that that's established. They know people are going to want to travel. They want to go to remote, interesting, unique locations. Um, and they want to be able to make a difference. This is a great opportunity. And then part of that money that they're using is going in order to help the local community that wouldn't have been helped otherwise. And now these children in Turkana have a good education. They have good health care because of tourism. Tourists are coming home with a really positive experience. They've learned something, which is a key component of responsible tourism, and they felt like they've been able to make a difference. And it's sustainable in the fact that people are gonna continue wanting to do this, I think, for generations. Yeah, it's amazing. And so I guess when I saw that in practice, I thought, you know, there aren't always great examples. It's hard to find good examples of sustainability within development projects mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for all the different reasons that we're all aware of. But I thought tourism has a potential doesn't mean it's always, it's not a panacea, but it has a potential for development. And that's really what I'm looking when's, at. Um, when's your book coming out? <laughs> well, hopefully in the next year. I'm uh, trying to finish off a little more, uh, take some of these case studies, like the one I just mentioned, take some other examples and show how ecotourism, responsible tourism can be a best practice with regards to development. Um, and just trying to get uh, time and energy to, to finish it off. Uh, Dr. Ryan Snyder, he teaches at Humber College. Uh, check him out on, or check his company out on Socially Responsible Safaris, S-R-S-A-F-R-F-A-R-I-S, so srsafaris.com. And it's a cool site and a really cool initiative, so thanks. Thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure.